it's Heather and Ferg from New Old Friends. Hello! We're a quarter of the way through our audio advent calendar, Crimes, Clues and Christmas. Peter Artridge, art investigator extraordinaire, has been hired by his club chairman to look into some dodgy goings-on at a prestigious ballet company. He's still gathering evidence and taking statements. But so far, things aren't going too badly. Will it last? Probably not. But while we wait for that, another round of our NOF quiz, Ferg? Uh, our hashtag NOF quiz, Heather. Right. <laughs> now, look, I'm very trendy. Hashtags are very, <laughs> very in. They're so in right now. Uh, this one's very tough, OK? This is a tough one. Question six. In A Christmas Carol, what is Bob Cratchit's wife's first name? That's really hard. Yeah, well, nobody said it would be easy. Look, no one's here for fun, all right? We're here for education. Now, True. don't go Googling it. Where's the fun in that? No, don't Google. So. What, what do you... No, don't do that. Anyway, on with the story. Let's see how Artridge is getting on in Crimes, Clues and Christmas. Ding, ding! ding. Crimes, Clues and Christmas, Chapter 6. I began the day by sitting down with Michael Barrington, the director of dance at the ballet, in one of the booths in the theatre's bar. Theatres and daylight are strange places. Of an evening, with the lights blazing, they are palaces of wonder, polished brass, fixtures and fittings gleaming against the plush red velvet which covers all the seating and the crush of expectant bodies. The front of house areas make one aware of all the possibilities of theatre, the worlds waiting to be created and explored before your very eyes. But in daylight, those same spaces are revealed to be slightly cramped corridors with seating areas crammed in at odd angles. I'd arrived slightly ahead of our allotted interview and been treated to some truly splendid customer service from the lank-haired teenage girl serving behind the bar. I'd opened the pleasantries with a fairly innocuous, Good morning! To which she stuck out her lips and stared at me with a hint of menace. Is it? But I was not to be deterred. We archers are keen exponents of small talk, and it would require much more than that to put me off my chit-chat. Well, the weather is clement, uh, the pound's doing well, and my health is in fine fettle. So, yes, I'd have to say, all things considered, it is a good morning. A large sigh, and another stare from the young serving girl. <sighs> right. What do you have to say about the shivering invalids and the unwell, then? Oh, are they here? I'd say sit next to that radiator and let me fetch you an aspirin. <laughs> to accompany my quip, I flashed her my winningest smile, but it failed to win her over. She was evidently one of these morose type of youths who are becoming all too frequent a fixture in our fine country. They see a man in a fine motor car and, rather than admire the dash of the thing as its chrome wheel arches catches the light, they lament the plight of the poor blighter who forged the steel, which rather misses the point, if you ask me. If the chap is willing to work that hard on something for so little reward, the least we can do is to let out an admiring coo-hoo when we see his handiwork drive past, surely. I don't think you're taking the suffering of your fellow man seriously, she pouted, probably quoting from some damn pamphlet or other. I think pamphlets ought to be outlawed, and I'm seriously considering writing down my thoughts on the matter and distributing them. Hmm. Her sloganeering caused me to scrape near the bottom of the barrel in my reserves of good humour. Well, I think it's a bit early for all that. If I get all hot and bothered with all that before midday, I'll be suffering badly myself by dinner time, won't I? Now, enough doom and gloom. I'd like a cup of tea with milk, please. Rare milk. Well, then I'll have it with a slice of lemon and a smile. 
We're out of those and all. She replied with a face which suggested the reason they were out of lemons was because she'd sucked them all dry. A black coffee will be marvellous then, I said, and retreated to the table where I was now sat opposite Michael Barrington, ready to begin our interview. We were sat in a booth with a stunning view of the entrance to the men's toilets. Of course, the place was empty with the exception of our Bolshevik barmaid, so thankfully we didn't have to endure the particular ammonia-rich odour of a gent's loo in a public place wafting over to us every time the door opened and closed. I was dressed rather more demurely than the previous evening, a simple Harris tweed jacket over a cream shirt. I added a bit of interest with a muted paisley tie, but even still I would describe the outfit as understated. The same could not be said of Michael Barrington. He had shaved one side of his head, up almost to the top of his scalp, and allowed the rest of his dark hair to grow long and flop over to that side. I only noticed his naked side scalp when he ran a leather-gloved hand through his jet-black mane. He had on very small circular sunglasses, so small I could see the whites of his eyes either side of the lenses, and a thin pencil moustache perched on his lip like an emaciated slug. As arresting as his head was, it was lower down that he really grabbed one's attention. His shoulders were adorned with remarkable feathered accoutrement. He looked a little like the result of a Roman centurion enjoying an unspeakable affair with a raven. It was clearly a costume to inspire comment, and so I commented, That is quite a striking jacket you're wearing. The director peered over the top of his microscopic shades and plucked at one of his feathers before drawling a reply. Oh, this thing. Had it yours? Just something I threw on as I climbed out of bed this morning. <laughs> not mine, of course. The bed, not the jacket. I recall I got the jacket while I was working for the Paris Opera Ballet. One of the dancers used to be part of the Folie Bergère and took me backstage. Not like that, you filthy beast. <laughs> backstage at the Moulin Rouge. I saw this hanging on one of the racks and it caught to mind a magnificent magpie. So, like a magpie with something shiny, I filched it. Had it ever since. I was making notes as Barrington spoke, but as he reached the point in his story about stealing an item of costume from a performance, I couldn't help but pause. He noticed my hesitation and pulled down his glasses to the end of his nose and fixed me with a stern look, one eyebrow raised. Oh, now don't go getting ideas, Mr. Artridge. I know why we're having this little chat. Gossip travels faster through a chorus than venereal disease through a naval crew. <laughs> the gorgeous jewels for the Prima have been stolen, and I know what you're thinking. I tried to feign innocence. I'm sure I don't know what you're suggesting, Mr. Barrington. Don't be absurd. It's written as clear as day upon your face. First, you're thinking I've just confessed to stealing theatrical wardrobe from a show, and you're here investigating exactly such a crime. And second, I asked, intrigued as to what it could be. You're thinking, I wonder if I could pull off a feather shoulder pad like that. For what it's worth, I think you could. I saw you last night in that gold jacket of yours. A bit subtle for my tastes, but you wore it well. Thank you. <laughs> the compliment coming from a man so clearly on the bleeding edge of fashion resonated with me, but I feared I was perhaps letting my interview get away from me and try to drag us back to the matter at hand. You're right, on both counts for what it's worth, but chiefly about your admission of petty larceny. You must admit it does draw the spotlight of suspicion in this case onto you somewhat, wouldn't you say? He scratched at the bald side of his head with a long fingernail. I understand the logic, Mr. Artridge, but I'm a director, and so I ask you what my motivation could possibly be. Your motivation? Well, the oldest motivation in the book is money. Darling, I'm a fated director of ballet. Your respected chairman, Eldridge Rawlings, is by no means the only patron of the arts with deep pockets. 
I can command any fee I like. <laughs> I'm more than happy to show you my bank account, dear heart. It's obscene. <laughs> Money's not a factor for me, no. The thing which drives me forward is the pursuit of pure, unfettered artistic perfection, which is why you can rub me off your grubby list of suspects. The thief has meant I have to deal with replica jewels in the show, a thing which lowers the aesthetic value of the piece, and don't let a producer convince you otherwise. His argument was as striking as his jacket, and I have no qualms in telling you I was swayed. I crossed him off the list and made a note to look into this director of dance business if it was quite as well paid as all that. He asked me if I had any further questions. I told him not at this time, and he bid me good morning. I hadn't actually interviewed Marlena Schweinvolger the previous evening, but I'd got enough of a sense to see I was unlikely to get much joy from her, and so next on my list was Daisy Love, the new prima ballerina of the company. For this tete-a-tete, I made my way to her opulent dressing room. There was a teal chaise longue, flowers on every surface, and all along one wall was a desk with mirrors surrounded by blazing white light bulbs. Daisy herself was sat quite demurely in a corner, nestled into a slightly battered-looking beige armchair. I'd seen this young woman the night before, cavorting about the stage like a Grecian goddess with wings on her heels. She'd been imperious in her costume and makeup, but now she looked small and fragile, her body delicate, almost insubstantial, dressed in a cream leotard and swaddled in a huge grey blanket scarf. She wore mousy brown hair in a loose bun and spoke quietly, hesitating over each word. Hello. I... Are you... Are you the detective? I don't use that particular word, but yes, I'm investigating the jewel heist. Heist? You think it's a heist? Her eyes became wide. The jewels were there one moment and gone the next. That's pretty much the formula for a jewel heist, yes. Golly, I don't ever think I've been involved in a jewel heist. But then I didn't really ever think I'd be a prima ballerina either, so... I skipped past her modesty, charming though it was, and latched on to the nugget she dropped. Not much gets past old Artridge. Sorry, did you just say you were involved in the heist? I asked. In what capacity, Ms. Love? Oh, golly, I, I, I can see how that sounded. No, I, I just meant, well, they were my jewels, weren't they? Were they? Well, no, I, I suppose, suppose they, they, weren't, they weren't my jewels. I, I was the one who was supposed to wear them. Not at first, though. No, you're right. Originally, it was to be Marlena in the role. Do you know why Mr. Barrington made that change? Mr. Barrington? Um, I don't think it was Michael's idea to switch us out. He's always been such a huge fan of Marlena's. I think it was something to do with money. Money? How do you mean? Well, Marlena is a giant star and she has a giant fee to match. But I signed on as a chorus member and I'm still performing under my original contract. You mean you didn't get a raise when they promoted you? Oh, golly, no. I think I'm the lowest paid person in the building. Not that I mind, though. I don't mind. I, I, I do it for free. But don't tell anyone that. I, I do have to pay my rent. I was utterly charmed by this bird-like little creature in her armchair nest. She was right. She was quite the unlikeliest person to be involved in a jewel heist. But as she'd also pointed out, she didn't exactly fit the bill as a prima ballerina either. Daisy, I'm going to ask you a simple question, if I may. Of course. Anything I can do to help the company. Did you steal the jewels? No. No, of course not. I believe you. Do you have any idea who might have done? She went quiet and started pulling on her big toe. Daisy, I coaxed. Do you know something? Oh, no, 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 I, I, don't, I don't know something. I don't know anything. It, it's just... Yes? Well, I heard that Rudy... Uh, 
Mr Lightfoot was in a bit of bother money-wise. He actually asked me to lend him some cash back when I was in the chorus. But then a couple of days ago, the day after um, the heist, he was suddenly all flash again. New watch, new shoes, and offering to take all of the chorus girls out for drinks. On him. I thanked Ms Love for her time as I left her dressing room. I was quite confident her dainty digits hadn't been the ones to spin the dial of the safe and lift the jewels. But this Rudy Lightfoot sounded like perhaps he might just be light-fingered too. Luckily for me, he was next on my list to speak with. Crime Clues and Christmas is a New Your Friends production, part of the Comedy Who Done It's For Your Ears podcast series. Written and performed by Fergus Woods Dunlop and Heather Westwell, with sound and music by Fred Riding. New York Friends gratefully acknowledge the support of Arts Council England in making Comedy Who Done It's For Your Ears. Mm-hmm.